Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6. We're moving into the specifically prophetic um, parts of John's revelation, or John's vision that Christ showed John. And uh, as we do that, his goal here is, again, to... uh, Revelation, in a lot of ways, is, again, to connect... Uh, back to the rest of the Bible. So we're going to see some things about that in a minute. But it's also to prepare the saints until Christ returns to endure. And to, uh, so that's part of the goal here is, is not everything is revealed and not everything is talked about that we have questions on. But his goal is to help us as Christians endure in the face of this world and its destruction and its suffering. And so um, as, we, as we look here this morning, I just... Uh, I, I don't have a cold, for those of you who know what my voice normally sounds like. Uh, we, we went up to the state cross-country meet in Fort Dodge, uh, and uh, it was as you know, freezing, basically, yesterday. And uh, so, for a cross-country meet, especially a state cross-country meet, you have to move. Like, if you want to see the runners, you've got you've to run. Well, uh, my wife was prepared to do that. I obviously was not because I, I ran with her and well, I ran behind her, let's just put it that way. Uh, and she great, she like, like run up and then she'd turn around like, where are you? Okay, I don't want to lose you. Okay, that's what she would do. And, uh, uh, but in the, after, after that got done, uh, I realized uh, my lungs were not really prepared. And so they're, they're kicking back at me like, why did you do that to us? Uh, run in 32 degree weather just like that. So, um, that's, so I don't have a cold, but I, it's a little lower than normal because of everything going on, and I might have to drink a little bit too. Um, okay, so we're looking at Revelation chapter 6, and we're looking at opening the scroll. And again, there's, there's a connection here in Revelation, and kind of the structure of Revelation is, is interesting because it m- mimics the, the structure of, uh, of Exodus, right? And, and, the, and the Exodus that took place because it is, it's this Exodus of God's people out of the destruction and slavery of, of sin and, 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 uh, and oppression by human government to be under God's rule, right? And, and so in Exodus, there's, what, 10 plagues, right? And then there's the, uh, then they get delivered, in a, in a sense, they get kicked out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea, and ultimately, they end up conquering Canaan. So, so you have this movement um, it, it, th- through the five books of the first Old Testament of them leaving Egypt and then going through the Red Sea and then eventually getting to Canaan after, you know, 40 years in the, in the wilderness and conquering Canaan. And you see this movement and, and Revelation, the structure of Revelation echoes that. It's got a lot of similarities. And we're, we're going to look at, just giving you kind of the structure today. Instead of 10 plagues, there's 21 plagues, three times seven, echoing the kind of the Trinitarian. This is a, this is all of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit coming to rescue um, their people and to deliver their people and also to judge the, the, the wicked earth. And so you have this completeness, obviously a completeness to it with the three and the seven. Um, 21 plagues, but then Christ's return, and then ultimately the great right throne judgment and the new heaven and new earth. And so there's this, 
this, uh, this structure that's echoing, this pulling out of God's people, out of the slavery and, and the destruction that is in the world and, and, and restoring them to himself. And so there's this pathway that we're going to go through uh, and look at this morning. And, um, and so with, with, the, with the series, these three series, it's, it's the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls. And there's discussion amongst these theologians, do the, the seals and the, the, the trumpets and the bulls just recapitulate, do they echo the same thing? There's just three different, uh, three different views of the same events. But really, if you, as you look at the text of Scripture, the text kind of shows that the seals, the seventh seal, as we'll see, starts the trumpets, and the seventh trumpet starts the bulls. And so there's more of, a, of an opening, uh, 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 kind of just like a scroll would, a, a, a pulling back of seeing the fullness oh as you pull the whole thing out and so so this is just the structure that we're dealing with within revelation itself the text because again um my goal this morning is not too much to answer all of your questions my goal is for you to understand the text of scripture to be able to understand what it means and why it's important to you and and there's a lot of places i could go and you know in, in the 40 minutes we have, but, uh, but I'm, I'm going to stick to the text of Scripture, and I, but I am going to bring in other texts to kind of guide us and help us, but, but mostly to point out the point that, that's here in Revelation, Revelation 6 and 7 this morning. And so let's look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 7, the first seal, which I'm, I'm calling imperial peace, imperial peace. Revelation chapter 6, you can follow along here or in your Bibles. It says, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And so you have this kind of this dichotomy here first of, of whiteness, which usually involves peace, but then, it, but then it's, uh, it's, it's a peace that's coming to conquer and to, to, con- to control. And so it's kind of that imperialism, that kind of idea of, okay, we're, we're going to establish peace by controlling and, and doing that, that, that way. And um, this, some people point to a question whether this, this writer here might be involved with like, the revelation of the Antichrist. But overall, the point of the text here is just that there's four horsemen that are coming, and they're coming to, to work, work out God's will on the earth. And, um, and so I think that's an important distinction there to focus on what the text is saying. Because the, the point, is, we'll see also in 1 Thessalonians 5, points this out. It says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything, anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pangs come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And so the point is that, is that there's this idea that um, as the world, um, the world is looking for peace, they're looking for peace in, in a lot of different ways, and one of the things that will seem to be happening in the last days is that we're establishing peace, we're getting there, we're making things happen that way. Um, and at the same time, you have the next seal which is war. Notice again, Revelation chapter 6, verse 3. When I heard the second seal, I heard the second living voice, the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. 
Again, just saying, again, this writer's coming. You can see the details here that he was permitted, again, to take peace from the earth. Again, God letting this happen for a specific purpose. It's not, um, and, so, and so the war is part of what's happening here in the picture. And, and the next one is, is a direct follow-on to most wars, which is famine. Um, when, I, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the, uh, in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. A denarius is usually a day's wage, and so a quart of wheat in a day is, again, not very much. The point is food prices are high. And this is typically what happens after war is famines. I mean, even you look at why there's so much concern globally with the Ukraine war is because Ukraine is like Iowa in the Midwest, a, a grain factory, if you will. And if you take all that grain that Ukraine normally uses to feed the world just like we do and take that away because of war, then all of a sudden you've got famine and you've got, you've got high prices on food. And, uh, and so that's just, it's just, part of how, unfortunately, wars work, but again, God allows this and, in fact, is, is making, in some ways, making this happen. Finally, death and disease is the next one. <clears throat> Sorry. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given... A, they, here's, they, this is the four horses, okay, so we went from individual horses now to all four of them, were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with, with wild beasts of the earth. And so we have these four seals here, and you see this pattern in all, all three sevens, is that the first four kind of go together, and then five, six, and seven are a little, a little more uh, intense and different than the first four. Uh, and so, just questions we have. It's like, okay, so, again, when, when does this happen? How does this, how does this play out? F first of all, I want to point you to that, the fact that it echoes Matthew 24. Matthew 24 just talks about the same things, and it says this, because the disciples are asking him before the crucifixion, when is the kingdom going to come? Verse 3 of 24 says, And he sat on the Mount of Olives, as he sat there, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. And so he's saying, look, there's going to be war and rumors of war, and this is just going to be part of, of the process, but it's not the end. It's not, it's, it's not the, the full judgment of God and, and, and deliverance of his people. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And, and you can see, that, like, the analogy in Matthew 24 is birth pains, right? And, and, and a birth pain, uh, I didn't know this until I had kids, but birth pains come in, in waves, right? It's, it's not all at once. It's not continual. It's a wave. 
And so you have it for a couple minutes, and then it releases. Then you have it for a couple minutes, and it releases. And, uh, and you know you're closer and closer to having the child because the, the waves get closer closer together, right? And they get larger and larger. Um, and, uh, and the analogy in Romans 6 is, is hoofbeats in, in a sense, right? Because it's saying, look, there's this, these horses, in a sense, roaming the earth, permitted to let imperialism happen and war happen and famine happen and disease happen. And it's just, it's happening all over the earth in various ways and at various times. Um, and it's, but it's, uh, it's not the end yet, is the point. Uh, verse 9 says, And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so you see in Matthew 24, Jesus is saying, look, Matthew 28, send you out into the entire world to preach the gospel to all nations. That's going to happen first before the end comes. And here in Revelation chapter 6, you have the same idea of there's wars and rumors of war and there's famine and there's disease all and also disease is also a corollary to, to famine as well right once you don't have food you, your your immune system doesn't take care of the normal things of uh, that you get exposed to and then you get sick and then disease and plagues start to increase and so you see these these four things in a sense saying look these are things that are happening, and then you see Revelation chapter, uh, the next, the fifth seal, which is the saints and martyrs waiting. And so I'm just going to move through these, and then we'll talk about the implications of them. Revelation chapter 6 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow saints and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Notice here in the text, right, it's saying their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. So you, it focuses in on the martyrs, but it also acknowledges that not all Christians will be martyred for their faith. But it says that there are fellow servants with them. So God has chosen some to be martyred, some not to be. And in some ways, the point of the text here is to say, look, what are you living for, in a sense? Like, like the emphasis is on God, God honors those who trust him even to death. And we know that if our sins are forgiven, that we have a hope in heaven, that this, this world and all its sin and destruction is... is is going to be destroyed. It's, it's not worth pursuing. It's not worth living for this world. So why, why live for this world as Christians? Even in a sense, we are fellow brothers, fellow participators with those who actually die for the faith, and yet we ourselves live. Christ could return at any time and rescue us from even a normal death. So why, why focus on just living for this life, what I can get out of it? And he's pointing out here that those, which also echoes what came out of Revelation 2 and 3 as he talked to the church, he's saying, hey, there's something more to live for here. 
You can conquer. Don't get caught up in all the deceptions of this age, but live for Christ. And so um, it says here, they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the, their number should be complete. So there's this sense of incompletion yet about the seven, the seven seals, that, that there's, there's, uh, there's a process here that the world is going through, which then leads to the, an earthquake in fleeing from God's wrath, the sixth seal. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig sheet fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. We can picture this, right, because we see uh, leaves, right, we see all the leaves falling now, and, and it's that idea of, okay, there's this, evidently, some, a, a climactic event that's centered around an earthquake, but also in this, uh, and, and also an eclipse, and also uh, a lot of the stars in the sky, and it's probably more a reference to them, like we would call meteors today, falling through the atmosphere and causing a lot of things. All this is happening in a sense all at once. It says the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and, and island was removed from its place. And so you have, and in some senses, the whole earth is being shaken. The earth is being shaken. The atmosphere is being shaken, and and, and the sea is being shaken as well. Um, and, and what's the response to that? It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And so you ha have here the response, which is interesting because I think uh, when you talk about earthquakes today, most people don't, don't respond this way. <laughs> they might respond, well, why does a good God do this to us? Why does he get, let earthquakes happen if he exists at all? Why can't he prevent this? Oh, and, and also, but this is, this is uh, climactic. It's important. And obviously, in some ways, this, for sure, this one hasn't happened yet, that, that level of an earthquake. And so you have here kind of an announcement. But part of the, part of the issue here, I think, as, as people who study their Bible, right, is, is you're trying to, okay, how do we correlate all this together with other passages of Scripture? And overall, as it comes to the end times, there's this, there's this ambiguity about when it starts. Even in Matthew 24, when he says, here, all these things are happening, and then the end will come. He, he links it not to a rapture event or... Um, or, or even an earthquake here, he just says, you'll know that it's happening when, when the, the abomination of desolation in the temple happens, that there's going to be a, there's this, this event where, where God is going to be mocked, in a sense, and that's, your, that's the key to, to knowing that something is happening here. And, and so this, the same ambiguity is about this chapter as well. When is this going to happen? And, and, the, and, the, and it's just not clear, right? Because there's no specific event outside of you know, this worldwide earthquake that's, that's really clear about it. And, and so you're like, okay, how, why? Why is it unclear? Well, I think part of it is, again, to remind us of why, what, we're, what we're seeking to do, to, be, to endure in the midst of this world. 
But there's also this interlude here that helps us to maybe put it in perspective because this question, who can stand, gets answered in chapter 7. And it's an important, to put the, the seals in context, you've got to understand this next chapter in order to, to, to figure out how to put it all together. And so notice this interlude here of who can stand. Um, and I, I don't have it on the screen, so you're going to have to look at your Bibles for this. All right, so Revelation chapter 7. Notice what he says. He says, After this I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, it's from the east, right, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now this is a reference to the trumpet judgments, which we're going to see later, that they're given the responsibility to harm those things, and we're going to see why next week. We can't look at going into great deal today, detail today. But you get this picture here of the earthquake happening, the, the, the rulers of the earth responding and fleeing from God's wrath, not, not repenting from God's wrath, but fleeing it. And then you get uh, these, in a sense, saying, wait a second. So there's this pause, in a sense, where they're saying, uh, we're going to seal the servants of God before we move forward here. And it says, verse, and I heard the number of of those sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin were sealed, 12,000 from each tribe. And here you have this 144,000. Um, the, one, the one tribe that's not mentioned is Dan, uh, but Dan is mentioned in Ezekiel as being in the the kingdom of God and in, in, uh, given a, a, a place in it, and so this is probably in some ways figurative because they're saying, hey, look at the, 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 it's just saying there's a certain number of Jews, especially they're going to be protected, but from each tribe, you're going to have this complete number. 12,000 is definitely a, a symbol for completeness in or wholeness covering the whole tribe because it's 12 tribes overall. But, there, but it's, it's sealed here with a purpose, it seems like. And Ezekiel 9.4 kind of talks about a similar type of event. Um, Ezekiel 9 is, is, is when, um, Ezekiel is written when God is kicking out Israel from Jerusalem for its sin and, and destroying the wicked Jews and, and, and preserving the righteous Jews. And Ezekiel 9.4 says, And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who, were, who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And so this is similar. It's not, this, this is a similar uh, kind of type of event, right? Where he's saying, I'm going to seal these Jews, and then I'm going to remove these wicked Jews, and then I'm going to protect these sealed Jews. And it's this, it seems like it's a similar type of thing here where God's saying, okay, I'm, I'm ready to wipe out the wicked, but I'm going to protect the righteous. 
And, uh, and, it's, and you see also that he mentions the Jews here, and then he goes to the church. So there's this, this picture here of protecting those. Again, who are the people who can stand in, God's, in, in, in the face of God's judgment? Those who he has sealed, those who he's going to protect, those he's going to protect in the, in the face of his wrath, um, which is very similar to Ephesians 1, right, where it says, In him you also, that is in Christ, you also, that is you who have trusted in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so you have this protection idea that God is trying to protect first the Jews, and then we're going to see the church, um, even as he's going to uh, judge the earth at the same time. And so as Christians, we don't have to fear God's judgment because we, our, our judgment for sin was, was taken care of on the cross, right? Um, and so we have this, this thing here, and so we see this as well as we move into the, the, the section here on the church overall. Notice uh, verse, the, verse 9 in chapter 7 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This echoes, obviously, Revelation chapter 5, except it adds in, in Revelation chapter 5, it's all the angels and all creatures on heaven and earth. Here it adds in this group of people from every tribe and tongue and language, from every nation. And here we have, in a sense, a reference to the church as a whole, a body who have been rescued by God, who are coming and saying, salvation belongs to the Lamb, right? He's the one who's delivered us. And, and they're gathered in heaven, not, not on earth, but in heaven, around the throne now. And they're praising God for what he's done for them. And again, you say, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where do they come like, how are they added to the scene from Revelation 5? Where did they, how do they get added? And John says to him, sir, you know. He's like, I, I don't know, but you obviously know. You're going to tell me. You're asking the question in order to tell me. And he said to him, and so he's, by, by putting it that way, he's emphasizing that they're being added to the scene, right? He's saying, look, there, there's something different here. Pay attention to the difference. And he said to me, these are those, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so you, this echoes Revelation 3.10, right? Which says, because you have kept my word and patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so you have this, this church overall that's being re removed from the, the great tribulation that's coming, that's going to be praising God and, 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 and also saying, God, still deliver us. And so you see the difference between the seal, right? Seal five, where the question is, you know, like how long? And it's just wait until the number of your brothers is complete, right? And then in Revelation seven, what you see is this picture of the completed group, it seems like. So you go from 
the, uh, a waiting to, uh, okay, we're ready to go now. Does that make sense? And so that, that puts it in perspective to say, okay, there's the, the seals overall are preparatory for what God is doing. They're opening the, the scroll to ex, the execution of judgment. They're not the actual execution of God's judgment on the earth, but instead they're preparatory for it. And so you, you see here at the end of chapter 7 this song of praise, which most songs of praise are to God, and in a sense they, it is to God, but it's about us as believers in Christ. It says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You get this, this shepherding psalm, and it reminds you a lot of Psalm 23, in a sense, where he's, they're, they're around God's throne. He's sheltering them by being with them, and that they, they shall hunger no more. It doesn't mean we're not going to eat in heaven. It just means that we don't have need. We're not, we're not hungry, like in the sense of, hey, if I don't get something to eat, I'm going to die. If I don't get something to drink, I'm going to die. It's not like that anymore. But in fact, all our needs are going to be met, which again echoes, right, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, which is better translated, I have no needs, right, because God is my shepherd. Now the passage here, which is interesting too, it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, again, it just echoes that sense, when it's mentioned, which we'll see later, that it's that idea that God takes care of, he's going to conquer even death. And so you have this, this interlude here that's focused on who can stand and saying, look, if you're sealed by God, if you're protected by God, if you've been redeemed by the Lamb, if you're shepherded by, by the Savior, then you can stand. You can stand before God. I mean, it echoes, I think, is it Psalm 40 or 42, where it says, though the earth give way and everything, the, the, everything's getting moved around, there's a great earthquake, what? Yet I, I, I know who my Redeemer is, right? I can stand. Let's just finish up the passage and look at the implications here. Just notice chapter 8, verse 1. We have this, the seventh seal. Revelation 8, 1 says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the angels, seven angels who stood stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So again, you see this, the seventh seal becomes, in a sense, the seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And that's the seventh seal. What's interesting here is not only does it open up the trumpets, but also the, 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 this, the whole scene is about the prayers of the saints. So again, it's connected, right? You have the saints in this fifth seal saying, how long? You have the, the saints in, in the interlude kind of, uh, look, we're all gathered around saying salvation belongs to our God, right? 
And then in the seventh seal, you've got these, these saints who've been praying for how long, and you have the, their number completed. Now this completed prayer body, so to speak, gets taken and, in a sense, put on the altar and then used to symbolize God's judgment on the earth. So what are the implications of this? Those are just three, in a sense, applications, I think, from the passage that help us to think about this. First of all, we should expect injustice and tribulation rather than utopia. Whether you interpret the seals as just specifically at a certain point in history uh, that's, that's future still, or if, whether, whether you take it as something that's kind of emblematic of the church age, overall the point is, both in Matthew 24 and here, that, that we're not going to have utopia. I mean, sometimes we get caught up in, okay, and why, why is that important? Sometimes people, Christians get caught up in, when is the rapture going to happen? Or what's the next sign that we should look for? But the main concern God has is for our endurance in the midst of this world and this life. And he's trying to set our expectations of how things will go. The ambiguity of the timing is designed to focus your attention not on some specific event, but your response to the injustices of the world. Do you echo how long when you look at the world? Can you echo with the saints and the martyrs how long? You look at the world around us, how long? There's war in Ukraine, how long? There's war in Israel, how long? There's, 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 there's disease and death, how long? You see the point here? The point is not to, to get you to focus on, oh, I'm just waiting for some event. The, the, the focus is to think about your heart. What's going on? How do I process what I do? Because you have a couple options. One is to say, I've got to find utopia. I've got to get rid of this suffering, get rid of these problems, and we've got to work toward a better world ourselves. Another option you have is to par- just participate. <laughs> to say, you know what? If it's if the biggest dog, the richest dog wins, then I'm going to become the biggest dog and the richest dog, right? That's another option you have, is to look around at the wickedness of the world and say, well, then I'll be just like everyone else. I'll just be better at it than everyone else, or try to be. The one option that's taking off the table, so to speak, is saying, in a sense, how could God, a good God, let all this evil happen? Because specifically here with the seals, God is in a sense saying, look, I'm arranging this because I am going to bring peace on the earth, but it's not going to happen through human effort and through human ingenuity and through human technology. That's not how peace on the earth is going to happen. I'm deliberately, in some ways the seals are showing you us that God is deliberately not letting utopias exist. Does that make sense? He's deliberately stirring up the forces of injustice at various times and in various ways to keep peace from the earth until the Prince of Peace comes. You know, there's a lot of utopian movements in our world today. And usually they pop up when there's a lot of anxiety about the changes that are happening in the world. So for instance, in the 1800s, there were a lot of utopian movements that popped up of various kinds 
Like saying, oh, we're just going to wait for this. You know, that we're gonna, we can turn this world into something better. For instance, Mormonism, started by Joseph Smith, was in the 1830s approximately when he started. And ultimately, he came to the view that, hey, we're going to start a utopia by uh, letting men have as many wives as they want to have. And then we're going to go find a land kind of flowing with milk and honey where we can establish our utopia, Right. And so they, they moved, moved ultimately out to Utah to establish their utopia. Is, U, is Utah a utopia? Mm, sorry to say no, right? But, but they thought they could break the, God's rules and do things differently, and so they could set up their own utopia. There, another kind of utopian ideal out there is just socialism. It's the idea that gov- if government can control everything, then they'll, they'll establish peace on the earth. They'll give us peace. And so we look to government. To gov- if government would just take over everything. Karl Marx advocated a scientific socialism is what he called it. He said socialism is just too kind of out there. Scientific socialism is to look at the trends of the world and figure out how to make this happen. And, he's, and he looked at the world, and he's like, okay, well, there's this struggle between classes that takes place, and the only way that we're going to get to true peace and utopia is if the working class throws off the bourgeois class, and, uh, and that when we have true peace and utopia is when we all live communally together. There's a lot of emphasis in utopians on communal living, which isn't necessarily bad, it's again just, it's, it's trying to create this ideal or this peaceful society without God in the picture. And God specifically is going to prevent that until Christ returns. You know, we can, we can, in our own country, we can kind of have this mindset, unfortunately, sometimes of, well, if all the rest of the world practice democracy like we practice democracy, then... <laughs> we'd have utopia in the world, in a sense, right? It's like, you realize most of the world looks at us and says, well, we don't want the mass killings like in, you know, Maine this weekend, and we don't want, you know, all these other issues that you have, you know, and the highest rates of me- mental health in the world, and all these issues, why would we want to become you? You have definitely in the world in the past you've had imperialism like the British Empire at one point right they said the sun never set on the British Empire right and and did it solve the world's problems no in today's world we have this idea of radical individualism that if I can just be authentic to myself then I can establish my own little utopia that's that's where we're at it's no hope of a, a worldwide utopia in a sense it's just my own little utopia but again and, and these seals are designed to show us that God is not going to let peace reign on the earth until the Prince of Peace comes. And that's the way that we, we should set our expectations. We should expect injustice and tribulation rather than utopia. If we're going to endure, we should, we should not be thinking to ourselves, okay, how do, how do I get the world to be a better place? Not in the sense of, I'm going to do good in the world. We should do good in the world. We should try to solve problems. It's not saying we shouldn't do that. It's just we shouldn't put our hope in that solving all the problems of the world and solving all of our problems. Because God is specifically not going to let it happen. He wants 
to be in a relationship with us. He wants to be with us and us with him. And the only way that can happen is through Jesus Christ. So that's an important thing to think about as far as enduring goes. What are my expectations as I look at the world? Do I think, okay, uh, I just, I get all depressed when I see news of another war happening. I get all depressed when I see that the financial markets are, are crashing. We don't live for this world. We don't. So don't get caught up in it. I'm not saying don't do good in it. Do good in it. Love people, serve people, help people. But don't get caught up in what happens in this world and that if only this would happen, then my life would be better and we could have this, all this peace and security. It's not going to happen until Christ returns. Just not. So set your expectations correctly because we should be longing for God's justice. Any substitute for God's justice is incomplete, and we see that all around us as people try to set up utopias, and in the process, you know, we look at Russia, right? The history of Russia trying to set up utopia with communism in Russia, and that fell apart, and then what do they have now? They have basically a dictator in Putin, right? And, and there's so much injustice happening in the world just be, because they tried to set up utopias rather than being realistic, and so we should not long for human justice in the sense of, oh, we should hope for good, a good justice system in our country, but ultimately we should hope for God's justice in the world. Where we echo with the saints, how long, God? How long? I hope that is, that will set your heart appropriately as you think about this world in order to help you endure in the face of all the evil that is in our world today. How long? God, I wish it wouldn't last too much longer. <laughs> God, you're the only one that can save us. You're the only one that can help us. How long? We, we need that. And because as we do that, we should focus on the gospel. The focus in, this, in these two passages is not on how God's kingdom will be brought to this earth by believers in God. You see that, right? There's, there's no mention of, oh, the church or the Jews, they take over the world and they set up God's kingdom and they set up his peace. No. It's, it's simply he's protecting them until he sets up the peace, right? The focus is on how the lamb will bring God's kingdom to the earth. The lamb is the one opening the seals, and he's ultimately reading the scroll. He's the one who will set up peace. He's the one who's worthy to set up peace, right? There's no one else worthy. And so we should focus on what the lamb has done, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and yet, within the context of, of this, we should also be praying for God to set things right in the world, to create justice, to, to, to solve the evils that are happening in the world. We should be praying for that, and at the same time realizing and promoting what the gospel says. And therefore, the last kind of application here is we should be confident in where we will stand. You ever had a kid who's, like, being indecisive? We were... I was in a coaching clinic once. They were training us to be coaches, and then they were showing us clips of fouls on the soccer field, and then you were supposed to, like, move to one side of the room or the other, by the way you thought, whether you thought it was a foul or not, or what type of foul it was. Sometimes you're standing in the middle, and you're like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Like, and you're just like, you know, and it's kind of, it's kind of humorous, because you're like, okay, just make a decision. You know, you could be wrong, you could be right, but just make a decision. 
But here we, we have this clear revelation from God that we have hope in the face of God's wrath, and it's through the Lamb. Go to Him. Run to Him. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. Isaiah 25 verse 8 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isn't it confident to know that we don't face death as believers? That's not, we might die as believers, but we don't face death. That's not our ultimate end. We have the hope of eternal life with God forever because Christ died and rose again. And that's the hope that we have. It's the, our hope is not in, oh, let's all go conquer the world and change all the governments of the world and make them all Christian, and that'll solve all our problems. No, our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our human effort, even in good human effort. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He will set things right, and he will swallow death forever. And that's why Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're here this morning and you have not accepted that free gift, it's free. It's, it's not based on anything you've done in the past. It's not based on anything you will do in the future. It's a free gift to God, from God to you because of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection that he's offering it to you as a gift. Do you, do you have that gift? Do you know you have that gift? Have you received it? Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is ask. Have you asked? If you haven't asked, talk to someone. Know for sure that when you stand in the face of God's wrath that you can stand, that you know that your sins are forgiven. This is what helps us endure because we know we've been forgiven. We know we can stand in the face of God's wrath. And we know that, yes, there's so many evils in the world, but the, that we don't have to solve them, but God will solve them one day. And so this gives us hope. It gives us purpose. It gives us strength. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder of our faith, Perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We run a race. We all run a race. We all have our own races to run. But we all need to look to Jesus. Remember what he has done for us. That, that, that race yesterday, um, Gilbert, as a team, was competing to run state. And they were running state, and as a team, they were competing to, to, to be the team that won. And, and state uh, is a little different than most cross-country races. If you've been to cross-country races, you see a few people going here and there around the course, and, and they, they go by the runners. But in, in the state, there's so many people at the state race that basically you're, you're, you're standing shoulder— like, like you're standing shoulder to shoulder with everyone, and then you're running to a new spot, and you're standing shoulder to shoulder with everyone. And they're literally running through this path of people as fast as they can. You know what I mean? And, 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 like, and they, as, as a runner, sometimes you'll be like, like afraid that somebody to step out in front of me. But overall, everybody's just you know, like cheering them on. And so literally, they go, once they get on, on the course, they're like, like, everybody's just cheering them on straight for, for 5,000 meters, right? 5K. And they're, they're cheered on, cheered on. Um, we were running around in the midst of that race, and, uh, 
And at one point, uh, we saw the, the coach of Gilbert's team uh, across, across the, the path from us. And we were, our, our, a couple of our guys went by. And then, the, I think it was the third guy, the coach looked at him and he yelled at him. He's like, you've got to catch those two next runners. You've got to catch those two next runners. If you do, we win. You know what I mean? He was like that. And, of course, then the runners run by, and then you run to the next spot. You can't, like, follow them around to see how the whole race progresses, right? So we run to the end. And Pella, Pella has really good runners. They had the first-place runner. They had the third-place runner. Then we, we had the eighth and the ninth-place runners. And then Pella had the tenth-place runner. We had the eleventh-place runner. You know, so we're behind through the three. But then... Our fourth and fifth place runners came in, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's like, okay, Gilbert had 57 points, and Pella had 63 points. And we won, because it's about the lowest points you can get. So Gilbert won state cross country, which is awesome. We're cheering us. It's awesome, right? The point is, is that they were prepared to run. I wasn't prepared to run yesterday. They were. They were dressed right for it. They trained for it. And even though it was 32 degrees and cold, they were running flat out hard. I think the guy who won ran it in 15.18, which is super fast for a 5K, you know. And, uh, and so, but they, they were prepared to run. And it wasn't about that they won, they beat all the other runners. That's not the point. The point is they ran their race the best they could, and, and, and together they won. And we have to realize that we run a race, but we affect other people around us. If we don't endure, it, it affects other people. They, they start to stumble. They start to fall because they look at us and they say, well, why? And we need to realize that we have a, a, a a reason to run, not just for ourselves, but for those around us so they can say, this was worth it, and together we win. Why? Because we know the end of the story, and we do win. Not because we win, but because Christ won the race for us. So, you can look at the world, and you can see problems, and you should see problems. You should not look at the world and see rose-tinted glasses, like, oh, everything's going to turn out okay. No, there are going to be problems. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be death. There's going to be evil but we know the one who conquers. Jesus Christ conquered. We can trust that. We can run our race because of what he, the race he has already run. So let's do that. Let's echo with the saints, how long? How long? And of course, the end of the book is, even so, come quickly, right? Even so, come quickly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that you are in control of human history. That we don't know all the things you have planned and it, these, these few words here don't give us a full picture of all you are doing and will do in the world. But they remind us that you are in control, that you are going to set up peace on the earth through your son Jesus. And that we can stand in the face of God's wrath, of your wrath, by looking to Jesus. Help us to keep looking to him. Help us to run our race well. Help us to tell others of the, 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 the forgiveness and the hope of eternal life that we have in Christ. 
so that together we will stand one day in your presence and say, salvation belongs to the Lamb. May that day come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your son's name we pray. Amen.